You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. I've got a great episode lined up for us tonight. I've got Billy Sven of uh, Creepers Herpeticulture, and we're going to talk about um, keeping. We're going to talk about what uh, some of the essentials are into going to you know good keeping, regardless of the species, whether it's reptiles or amphibians. Uh, Billy also keeps uh, Dendrobates leucomelos. So we're going to kind of talk about how he got into them and his approach towards keeping. But um, before we get into that, of course, I want to you know thank everybody for the nice uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the show is also on Amazon now. If you want to listen on Amazon Music as well, it's available there. So again, thanks everybody for the nice five star reviews. Uh, always appreciate that. And uh, of course, I want to thank the patrons who support the show. Everyone, thank you so much for your patronage. I don't like to run ads during the course of the show. A lot of podcasters are doing that. In case you haven't noticed. And um, helping out with the Patreon really helps me maintain the flow of the show without compromising the experience with the listener, which is important to me. So I want to thank everybody for that. And I want to give a shout out to my newest patron, uh, Julio, Julio Rodriguez, my man, my friend. Uh, thanks so much for your patronage, Julio. I appreciate it. It goes a long way. And uh, I want to give an honorable mention, a little, little kind of a funny shout out to uh, Sharif, a bunch of tanks. Uh, I, I want to thank you, man, for making me internet famous. If anybody hasn't uh, caught wise... Follow Sharif a bunch of tanks on Instagram. He's got a great post of an Adelopus on there. I made a little, made a little uh, funny comment, and uh, apparently the comment blew up and made a lot of people laugh. So uh, go check that out. And again, uh, Sharif, man, thanks for being a good sport and pinning that comment. <laughs> made me laugh. So uh, I want to get serious. I want to, because um, tonight's going to be a serious show. We're going to talk about husbandry. We're going to talk about some of, uh, you know, some of the important things that go into doing your research and really considering what goes into keeping an animal based on what you think you can handle, what goes into it, researching an animal species and really determining what's going to be best for you and the animal that you keep really regardless of the species. But, um, uh, let's just, you know what, let's just get into it. Uh, Billy, we've talked so much and it's really, really a great, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the show, but, um, how are you doing tonight? Tell us, uh, tell us about yourself. How'd you get into this uh, world of uh, exotic animals and whatnot? Yeah, thank you so much, Dan, for having me. This is uh, really an honor and uh, privilege. It's been really fun listening to your hundred plus episodes. Now um, they've all been been really great, and I'm honored to be a small part of it. Um, I've been loving reptiles and amphibians since I can remember. Um, I grew up in North Dakota, but spent a lot of my summers in Minnesota at my aunt's lake cabin. And uh, since before I could catch leopard frogs, I would have my older cousins catch them for me. So I would spend lots of time walking around the shoreline, finding a leopard frog before it jumped, and then yelling at one of my cousins to come and try to get it for me. And we have like home video of me doing this. And I'd put them in a bucket and watch them throughout the day. Um, then I got older and, uh, could stay up past the time that the lights would go out. And then I would find the gray tree frogs on the side of the cabin. And that was, uh, like a different world of these fascinating creatures. Um, and of course, garter snakes and tiger salamanders were always some of my favorites. Um, and it would go from just catching them to, keeping them for a couple of days, which is probably not the best idea um, to, I think I had some gray tree frogs that I kept through like, you know, I caught them in the summer and then I brought them back the next summer. 
um, and then uh, convinced my parents to let me get a quote-unquote real pet. Um, and so my first uh, real lizard was a bearded dragon that I got for my 11th birthday. Uh, my parents were wonderful and, and very supportive of all of this once they realized that the passion was uh, not going to go away and that I was doing my homework and really reading about these things and trying to do my best to take care of them. And uh, I had that bearded dragon uh, for, for quite a while, lived to be about 14 years old. Um, and in high school, got some other geckos, uh, fat tail geckos, and uh, leopard gecko, and some Peridura pictus geckos. Um, I bred those for a little bit, but didn't have very much success. Um, and then had to get rid of everything to go to college. Um, but it wasn't like a, a big collection, just like a half a dozen or so. And then my, my mom actually kept uh, taking care of my bearded dragon for me while I was in college. And I got him back after college, and he was still kicking around and uh, doing fine, and then died a few years after that. And I was busy with work um, and training uh, for my job and moving every few years. I knew that was going to continue for a while. So I... Uh, then got a ball python um, and realizing that that was a lot less work than uh, a lizard uh, as far as feeding in particular. Um, and so I had my ball python for a few years. Um, and then it's kind of early pandemic. I was um, finishing up the end of my training and moving around and realizing I was going to have my first real job and be able to uh, buy a house and not move for a while and uh, was thinking about the idea of finally having like a reptile room. And uh, also with the pandemic, had some extra time at home and found myself um, really thinking about what I, what I wanted, what I wanted the next few years to look like with slowly growing a collection of animals and um, just couldn't shake dart frogs and uh, how beautiful they are. Uh, every time I'd see them at the zoos, how much I, I would love to see them there. And started uh, going back through uh, Dendroboard and started asking questions and finding some people. And uh, probably, it, it was delayed artificially because I had to wait till I moved and got settled. Um, but it's probably about a year, year and a half after I kind of made a decision, this is what I wanted to do, that I built my first tank and then got my dart frogs uh, late in 2021. Um, and so I have my three Dentrobates leucomelis. And I still have my ball python who is uh, eight years old. And then I have some little uh, Ligodactylus kunrawi, um, which are Cameroon dwarf day geckos. Um, they're similar to like the Lagodaculus Williams eye, which are the electric uh, blue day geckos. Um, maybe a little bit smaller, not quite a, not, not that shocking of a blue color, but yeah, that's kind of my collection and um, it's going to slowly continue to expand. Um, yeah. Now, one of the things that interested me that you brought up was the idea of having a reptile room. And I've always had, something resembling a room. And when I was in high school, I actually had a little kind of half of a walk-in closet and that I kept everything in there. And when I got into the hobby, when I was really, really young, 
I kind of got like, I don't want to say in over my head, but I ended up keeping a lot of species and it, I don't want to say it became unmanageable, but I felt like my, my, um, my situation grew very, very rapidly and very, very quickly. And at the time there was also kind of a limited amount of information about some of the species that I was keeping just because sure. this was, this was in the, the really early nineties and you had what was available at the library and whatever you spoke to the local uh, reptile store, per, you know, people about, and, um, you know, there were some forums and whatnot at the time, but nothing that would provide people with the natural history and background that we have available today. Now, I've heard you in the past mention that your goal with your, I guess, um, you know, your, your, your venture into this hobby is to grow slowly as opposed yeah. to just kind of going in head first and trying to catch the bug like many of us do and try to acquire as much as you can as possible. What, what made you kind of opt for a, a slow growth as opposed to kind of hopping in and just trying to, you know, like Pokemon, trying to like catch them all, as they say. What, sure. what, what, what kind of tempered your appetite towards going really, really slowly as opposed to just going after everything? I mean, I think a big part of it is my age and other responsibilities in life, like not to be boring and practical, but, um, I mean, I, uh, I expanded not crazy fast, but I went from one animal to like eight animals in probably two or three years when I was in middle school, early high school. Um, it was never unmanageable, but it was a fair amount of work for, um, as a high schooler. Um, but I, um, with, with my, with my job and moving around, I just knew I couldn't really have more than one animal um for a long time and so i had uh you know i've been paying attention to the hobby now for over 20 years and um have seen people come and go and knew that even though i would have space and i would have some resources that i could expand pretty quickly um i wouldn't want to get in over my head, like, especially the idea of, uh, you know, I've, I've barely bred things. I've only bred those pictus geckos a little bit and didn't really have much success. Um, but the idea that, you know, if you get, like I could have easily gotten 10 tanks of dark rocks and then in three years, if even half of those tanks are reproducing, and now I have like a couple hundred tadpoles, like what in the world am I going to do with those? Um, and so the idea of making sure I enjoy every aspect and every step of the process before I realize that um, I'm overwhelmed, I'm already overcommitted to what I'm going to enjoy and what is still good for the welfare of the animals. And what about Lucamellus made you decide to start with them because yeah. for a long time the the beginner species were usually either um well it used to be it used to be Dendrobates azurius but it's it's Tinctorius the azurius locale was really popular uh, Lucamellus was another one and Aratus was was the other one as well but now with the state of the hobby being what it is I mean, it's it's arguable that people who come into the hobby with some background information could be comfortable starting off with Pamilio 
or um, Amarega or Ranitamea. What made you yeah. decide with with Leucomelis? Like what what drew you to that species as your first venture into keeping dart frogs? Sure. Yeah. No, I completely agree that uh, like the best beginner of most things is whatever's going to be good for you and your um, setup if you've if you've done the research for it. Um, for me, the things that I liked about Leucomelis um, is that they were reasonably good in groups. Like I knew I wanted to have a small group of them. Um, they so that that kind of put Tinctorius off the list. Like the idea that I would get if I wanted to get a few of them, and then I'd have to sex them and narrow them down to probably a pair. Um, and then what am I going to do with the extra ones? Like that was too overwhelming for me at the beginning here. So um, the being group tolerant, um, their natural history of being one of the dart frogs that um, actually is a little bit more seasonal. So um, they like live on the forest edge and even into like the savanna a little bit. And um like estivate is probably too strong of a word, but when it gets warmer, they don't breed. And so they tolerate warmer temperatures than other frogs and uh, tolerate drier conditions than other frogs. So those are reasons why I think they're often recommended as good beginner frogs because they, um, they're they not going to roll as soon as they get to like 80 degrees, like I hear some other frogs would. Um, I think they're really pretty. I think the the yellow and black is is quite stunning. Um, they're pretty easily available. I could find them locally. So those are those are all good reasons. I I've also had plenty of people recommend them. And so when I was talking to people that have done this before, and I've definitely heard some of the recommendations on your show too. Um, but I mean, I think of um, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard Alex Minky recommend them. I know. Um, Zach Herr has recommended them, um, and I'm sure other people too. So, um, yeah, after making my pro and con list, they were what I decided to start with. I've never kept them. I've never, yeah. I've never had a Lucamellus. It just, I don't know, not on purpose. It just never really happened. I've, I've had, um, you know, I mean, I'm kind of a phylobates person yeah. now i mean i I've, I've kind of gone like full-on phylobates now but i don't know i mean i'm not i'm not turned off to them by any reason it's just i know that they've always been really popular but it's been one of those species that just kind of always just never ended up in my lane yeah i think uh phylobates is my my next venture i'm hoping to get some of those this fall if i get my act together yeah they're they're like it's funny because something that's so big can still be relatively sensitive yeah, like especially the um, the like the the bicolors, like the Urabas are really, really like jump. Like mine have calmed down over a couple of years, but like if I compare them, like my terabillas, they don't care about anything. I mean, you could yeah, like like I could wake up in the middle of the night and like one of them could just be like staring at me in the face, like what are you going to do? Buddy? <laughs> I mean, they don't. Right. They're fearless. But um, the the bicolors, the the Uraba lines, my appearance, my experience with them has been they've been kind of jumpy, but. I mean, by and large, phylobates in general is pretty much pretty sturdy genus to to um, to get into. Yeah. So, how did you do your research? We'll we'll say like when you want to sure. 
I mean, what, again, what, I mean, I've heard you on other podcasts. I just, I just want to kind of just just back that up a little bit too, because um, in some, I know you've, you've done Project Herpeticulture, and um, in, in that episode, you talked about some of your your personal beliefs about keeping and what goes into really, well, I guess, really what goes into keeping as kind of a holistic view, um, you know, from start to finish. I'd like to hear about what your first ideas are about getting into a new species. Like if you were to go through it in steps and consider what's involved beforehand, like what, what was like, what was your research process in terms of like the specifics? I mean, I know we talked about why leucomalis would be practical but like what other like how did you find out about the natural history like you mentioned about them um where they where, where they live in nature and some of their behaviors and their heat tolerance what was the yeah. the research that you did beforehand and why did you think that was important to get into um you know the specifics of a species that's generally accepted as kind of kind of hump kind of uh, excuse me kind of common and relatively easy available and kind of hardy. Yeah. Like why go through that extra mile to find out as much about them as possible? Sure. Um, pretty straightforward. I like doing that. So I am very interested in the natural history of all the animals that I keep. I do think that there's a good reason for that too. Like a, um, a good keeping reason. I think it's one thing to be able to reproduce what other people have told you and even to like push the boundaries and expand on that, but to be able to really understand what you're doing and why you're doing it is I think quite important to be able to troubleshoot things, to be able to expand and grow the hobby and push the boundaries of what herpeticulture can and can't do. Um, you really have to know the natural history of the animal. So things that I was doing, um, uh, I, I, I already talked about Dendroboard. It's, um, I missed out on the, the heyday of it, right? Like when I joined, Facebook is where a lot of the minute by minute activity is, but um, there is so much gold in Dendroboard if you're willing to go through the searches and read through old threads. And there's still plenty of good people on there that I, I mean, I've posted and asked pointed questions and people are so uh, generous with their time or pointing you toward the right answers. Um, so I mean, that's an amazing place for care. Um, but there's also lots of research and science and natural history stuff on there too, or referenced and pointed in the right direction. Um, I got a book that I really like that I'm going to probably not remember the exact name of, but I can probably look it up. It's like Apostomatic Frogs of the Andes. Um, I can find out. Um, Apostomatic Poison Frogs of the Andean Countries. Um, and it's uh, not care related at all. It's natural history. And so there's a, you know, the first 50 to 100 pages, it's a pretty thick book, is all about um, dendrobatids in general. And, you know, there's like a chapter on um, reproduction, a chapter on life history, a chapter on habitat, a chapter on toxicology, uh, for example. Um, and then there's a chapter on every genus. Um, and so 
I've read through that. I haven't read through like all of the Andinabades and stuff, but um, I've looked through it all and read through um, at least the, the main things for all, all the frogs. And I feel like that gives you a good idea um, of the natural habitat of these animals um, and what their life experience is like. Um, and uh, it's not enough to just know the temperatures of the place because you have to know what their microhabitat is, right? Like you hear, you know, if I just look at, you know, pick an airport in Venezuela and see what the weather is there, it's going to be very different than what the weather is um, on a log in the shaded understory. Um, and so you have to understand how these frogs act in the wild. Um, and so being able to um, see them would be like the best. So, um, but uh, as substitutes, iNaturalist, you can find pictures of them. Um, you can uh, go on YouTube and find videos of people finding these animals sometimes. Um, you can go on Google Scholar and type in the scientific names and read papers, even if the paper is like, um, you know, a specific study about toxicology or something that's not going to be applicable to the natural history. The introduction of the paper is going to tell you a lot about how that animal behaves and is going to be really useful. And invariably, they're going to cite uh, um, 10, 15, 20 papers in that. And you can then look through the references and just look at the titles and see if you think any of those are going to be interesting. Put those into Google Scholar and try to find those. Um, and then probably the other thing that I did was um, talking to people. So I uh, now have met a couple people locally, but really it was through Instagram. I think it's one of the huge benefits of social media is your ability to connect with people that have a lot more experience than you. So, uh, I, I mean, I found that if you do the work up front, so you can ask an uh, informed question. Um, people have been very generous with their time with me. If, and in my, my personal philosophy is like, if I ask a question in good faith and they don't want to answer it, then that's not someone that I probably want the answer from anyway. Um, so I ask people questions and then I've developed relationships with people through that way. And then I can ask them little questions about like, you know, Oh, like how do you make that silicone stick to this? Or uh, this is th these plants aren't acclimating. Well, how do you do that? Or what about this gap? Could a frog fit in there? Um, the answer to that is always yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's kind of the, how I think about it. Now, as far as the, the scientific papers go, I'm going to, I agree with you hundred percent. And that's honestly how I find guests from the scientific community on my show is I'll, I'll start skimming through papers or at least abstracts and I'll just run down the list of authors and keep going and going and some, you know, I, I don't get a full, full conversion, but, um, you know, that's how I'm able to find my, my scientist guests. But, uh, I, I mean, I wanted to ask your opinion on this. One of the problems with 
scientific papers is that a lot of them are kind of you know behind this paywall where you have to either be a subscriber to a specific journal or um, you know I, I think you have to be part of certain research organizations I guess professionally yeah. and whatnot to be able to access those. I mean, career-wise, do you, I know you're, you're, you know, you work with with um, medicine, but um, does that give you access to any of these types of papers as like kind of like a side effect, so to speak? Like, can you access any scientific journal, or just do you have to kind of stay in with what you work with professionally? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I work um, in academic medicine as a physician, and I definitely have a huge benefit there. Um, that any, so I mean. Um, the University of Minnesota. And so any journal that the University of Minnesota subscribes to, I have access to. Um, and so it's that's a lot of journals. It's not everyone, but then I have an academic library. And so I can request articles and they can usually find them even if I can't get them. Um, however, Google Scholar has a lot of articles right there, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, if you email, so as a, I mean, I don't, I'm not a herpetologist, I don't publish in this realm, but um, the like very few times that someone's emailed me about my medical research, um, I am floored and happy to share that information with them um and would gladly send my papers and and any paper that i've published i'm allowed to to send it's like a it's a large number of copies uh it, it's so large that practically you, it means you don't keep track um and so uh ask the um Ask the researcher, ask the lead authors, whoever the corresponding author is, and they should be able to send it to you. Um, and uh, if you know someone that works at an academic center, have them get papers for you. So if there's a paper that you really want, you can't find it. Um, I, I mean, ask me. Uh, there are ways that we can that we can find them too. There you have it, folks. Billy Sven, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not if every if I get tons and tons of requests, uh, but uh, there are ways to to get it. Yeah, I I just I find it frustrating because a lot of times you can get to the abstract, and the abstract may have kind of the general idea of of what you yeah. want to maybe get out of it. I mean, sometimes certain stuff kind of overlaps and can be a little bit repetitive, but it it is frustrating when you want, when you just kind of casually browsing and you want to kind of go down a bit of a rabbit hole with a couple of papers yep. and uh, you, you can't access them because you just don't have, you know, whatever cr credentials. I mean, I understand that that's, that's kind of the, the nature of the beast, but it, it's it, silly it, though. Yeah. It, it is a bit frustrating when you think about it. I mean, I, I could understand a paper that is um, going to be substantially profound, meaning, you know, a, a new, drug for cancer or something like that. I, I, I could understand that being, um, you know, under lock and key, but you know, when it comes to a paper on aposematic coloration or something like that, I mean, I don't think right. anybody's going to really lose their livelihood if, uh, you know, a hundred or 200 people actually want to read it. I, I just, I feel like right. it would be almost beneficial for researchers to have interested parties, be able to access them with some form of ease without having to, you know, yeah. without having to become, 
um, you know, like as financially vested in as other people who it's just part of their professional career. No, completely agree. And and it's, um, I mean, people are talking about this a lot in the last decade, especially with the uh, how easy everything is to access with everyone having a, a computer in their pocket. Um, that that mode of publishing is really outdated and you see it changing. And again, I know medicine way more than I know uh, herpetology and biology, but um, like the biggest journals in medicine are completely open access. So you can just get those journals. Um, and so people uh, will call it, uh, this is going on like a, a slight tangent, but we'll call it like diamond open access. So it's free for the publisher to submit them for the scientists to submit them and publish them. And then it's free to the public. So essentially the publishing house gets funded through a different means like grants or they have their staff paid in another way um, versus a lot of journals are free for the scientists to publish, but then they charge you a subscription or $50 or something to see one article. And then the other mechanism that is also problematic is we're going to charge uh, the scientist $1,000 or $2,000 to publish the article and then it's free to the public. Um, and so those are kind of the models that are being like buffeted around and figured out. And um, it, it, we were just talking to some of my colleagues today because like when we get asked to peer review articles, we don't get paid for that. Um, it's just part of our job description which is fine, but it is kind of, it's just like, where's all the money going? <laughs> like it's going to publishers uh, to, who run the journal. Um, and so there are some where you, you're paying to publish and they're getting subscription fees. And yet like all, the editors get paid, but like the people that do the peer review aren't getting paid. Um, yeah, no, there's a lot of problems with academic publishing. For sure. Yeah, it's just, it's such a convoluted process that I, I could see yeah. it as, I, I mean, I feel like every little faction within, I guess we'll call it the exotics hobby under a, a, the big banner, has their own little sub worlds and sub communities and whatnot. But I feel like in the case of the, the, the dart frog world, I feel like a lot of us are kind of on the same vibe in terms of we, we generally value scientific information in terms of what when, yeah. what are they doing in the box that's great but what are they doing outside the box when they're in yeah. their you know when they're in their in situ situations and um, I could see someone who's becoming a good student of, of dark frog husbandry wanting to find out more and access scientific papers and like look you know what you're a 15 year old kid you might not have you know the, the money to subscribe yeah. to a journal or spend to a paper and whatnot and um, yeah, I mean, from what I've heard from other people who do work in science, I've never, I've never had anyone say that they would not send someone a paper. I've always had a resounding, yes, I will send you the paper, just send me an email. But um, I mean, for someone who might not necessarily be comfortable with that or someone just starting out, uh, I could see it as kind of, kind of an obstacle that might be a little difficult to, to, to get past just because of the way that things kind of are. I mean, and partly I, I do, I get it. People have to make a living. People do publish papers for research and 
you know, there's, there's organizations and companies and whatnot that want to keep that somewhat proprietary. I get that, but um, publishers, it's, it's, it's frustrating. because the researchers don't get paid for it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if anything, they're paying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the researchers are your friends. The researchers are going to get you the information if you're able to get in contact with the researcher. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what do you think that, and again, this is, this is kind of an opinion question, but what do you think the value of wild information, like how much do that, how much of that do you think that translates into captive? And let me just kind of frame this a little bit. I was talking to another guest a while back, and this is one of the things that really kind of stuck with me about the difference between keeping, we'll say sensitive wild caught animals in a captive environment and animals that had been in captive environments for multiple generations. Meaning uh, I think the species was, was Lamani actually. And uh, in this case it was wild caught Lamani that were fresh out of the wild really really delicate and a lot more attention needed to be paid to their husbandry in terms of how everything was they basically had to recreate everything the way it was exactly down to a t whereas the captive lamani that had been multiple generations you know f3 f4 f5 whatever would would subsist and do well on better in captive conditions i mean in your opinion how do you like what kind of what would you make of something like that like how important do you think captive information is in terms of excuse me how important do you think wild information is in terms of captive and like how do you marry the two together in a way that best serves the animal's needs sure yeah i mean i think clearly if people are having success in captivity with certain parameters those work, right? And, and and there's there's a bunch of different ways that people can do that and have success. You know, not everyone keeps things the exact right way. Um, like, can you keep these animals on sand? Probably not. Like, that's probably going to be, like, really bad. But, um, you know, do you need it really heavily planted? Do you need lots of bromeliads? Do you need film canisters? Do you need standing water or no standing water? Like, there's all these, like... Do you need UVB? What kind of like lighting do you need? All of these questions are always being asked um, and they probably don't have clear answers. Um, and I think um, similarly, like looking out in the wild um, and you'll hear, you know, someone sees a frog out in a clearing and it's on top of a log and you temp gun that area and it's 110 well, do you need to give them a 110-degree basking spot? Like, probably not. Uh, and that's probably quite dangerous to do if you're doing it in the size enclosures that most of us have, especially if it's made out of glass. But um, I think knowing how they're, you know, they're scurrying through leaf litter, they are going in and out of little ponds. They're not actually, like, aquatic. They're climbing up and down trees they're going out into sun and coming back that helps you recreate what you want um, and helps you knowing that bit of natural history helps you understand when someone says, Oh, your misting schedule needs to be this. And then you can process that a little bit through a lens of like, does that actually make as much sense? You know? 
Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I, I understand totally. I, I think that it's really more of tempering your approach based on, you know, what what the needs are at present. Like, I, I mean, I've talked to other people in the past about different husbandry methods and like even geography can pay, can play a big, you know, big role oh, in for it. for sure. Like where, I mean, you live up in, you know, northern United States. I have, have guests who live in, in Southern California, people in Texas and Florida and, and right. people as far north as, as, you know, northern Canada. And it really does run the gambit. And you, as much as, I feel like as much as we try to pull everything from wild husbandry, there's always that one little like wild card that we have to incorporate in terms yeah. of our captive husbandry that's almost based on our native environment rather than theirs. Yeah, for sure. Um, my room that I'm in is like my home office and it's where I have my animals and it's small enough that I humidify it. And so I just keep it between 40 and 60%. So in the winter, like the humidifier will go on if it's under 60, but during the winter, it essentially can only keep it at like 40. And then during the summer, um, it keeps it closer to 60. Um, and, and that I find really helps me a lot, but yeah, like the environment of your, of your home is a huge factor. And it's why just saying misting X number of times a day for X duration of time isn't the right answer. The right answer is get this level of ambient humidity, make it so that, you know, the leaves get wet, but then dry out before the next time you spray like that type of, or at least there's areas that areas that stay wet and areas that dry out, you know, like that type of idea is what you want, not just strict numbers in a recipe. Yeah. Yeah. And it changes too, as time goes by, or at least I've noticed. For sure. Have there, like when you started out with your, your vivarium and your leucomelis, like what kind of modifications did you have to make along the way as you kind of, you know, I mean, tanks develop and plants grow and the frogs grow and leaf litter changes and stuff like that. Like what were some of the modifications that you changed or made as you kind of went along the way as a vivarium matured? Yeah, I planted plants that grew too fast. I knew I was doing that to some extent based on uh, <laughs> hearing you talk and guests that you had had and then um, just paying attention to other things that have been online. So I planted them in some strategic areas where they should be somewhat easy to rip out. Um, and uh, so, but going forward, I probably won't do some of that again. Um I had some plants that I liked that died. Um, and I've, I wish I had more ventilation in this tank. I followed one of Troy Goldberg's designs. I modified it just ever so slightly, um, but I built my own tank based on um, essentially his, uh, um, the, they're close to 24 by 18 by 24, um, but they're you know slightly smaller so they could fit on the baker's rack. Um, I, if I were to do mine again, and when I've built smaller ones for my geckos, um, I put more ventilation in it now that I humidify the room. Like if I, when I first built this, I didn't humidify the room. And so it would get down to like probably 15% during the winter. And so that's what I was prepared for. But now that I have the room humidified, I would put a lot more ventilation on the top. And, um, I think that would be fine. It's a, it's a, it's a common thing, ventilation. I mean, that was one of the things that I continue to 
tinker around with. I mean, like my oldest tank has been up for about eight years now, the presently, and I'm still playing around with, with ventilation based on the seasons and how the tank matures and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, the plants are growing into the background so much more that things stay wet and moist so much easier than they did initially. Like I found, I, I, especially since I just have a one tank like this, I'm just hand misting. And so I would hand mist a lot early on. And now I, um, I mean, I still mist a couple times a day, once or twice a day, depending on the season. Um, and, but it, it's much easier and a little less intensive. What do you think the value of continuing education is within the hobby? Meaning you don't reach a point where you say, all right, I'm an expert and everything I'm going to do from now on is going to stay exactly the same. Uh, I mean, we talked about doing research prior to getting into an animal and figuring out its natural history, its captive situation, and basically the whole what it takes to get from point A to point B. Well, moving forward to point C and the future, what right. do you think the value is of staying current in terms of new approaches to husbandry or, I mean, even revitalizing old approaches to husbandry, which sometimes happens? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what do, you, like, what do you look at as a productive way to kind of stay current and move forward in a way that is conducive to preserving or advancing husbandry? And really for any species, it doesn't even necessarily have to be dart frogs. Yeah, I mean, I think conversations like this uh i i think for for me personally i love listening to podcasts and so i listen to uh many hours a week of reptile and amphibian podcasts um and and that has definitely pushed me thinking about things um you know uh listening to how people keep colorbred snakes and tortoises and things i don't have at all hearing people talk about their protocols for venomous uh snakes I'm, I'm never going to do that, uh, but I will learn a lot about their process and can build something into security of my enclosures or the planning of my room by hearing those things. So I think that that's one aspect of it. It's also part of my own constitution. Like I love learning and I love um, finding out more and pushing the boundaries even a little bit. That's what motivates me in many aspects of my life. So it's very natural for me to bring that to her pediculture. Are you doing something wrong if you don't do that? I would say no, as long as the welfare standard you have for your animals is high. You, you, I mean, there's people that have been breeding way more animals for way longer than I have even been around. And I'm not here to say that they're not doing a great job if they're doing the same thing that they now that they were doing 30 years ago. It could very well be that their animals are happy and healthy. For me, though, that's much less interesting than trying to figure out how I can push it and do things a little bit better than I've done them before. And I think that when you're talking about uh, the, the broader, bigger picture of how do we make herpeticulture more approachable to more people? How do we make it so that it has, I don't want to say like mainstream appeal, but so that people that are on the outside looking in don't think um, what a um, bunch of 
gross, disgusting uh, behaviors that these people are doing instead of being like, wow, that's interesting that they're dedicating so much to know so much about uh, these animals. Clearly, there's a passion there instead of, uh, you know, being concerned about like the the mental state of the people that are doing this. It's an interesting dichotomy when you think about it, public perception. I mean, people yeah. go people go into a zoo or an aquarium, and and obviously this is with with all you know all my respect for zoos and aquariums that do a great job, but the public will go in there and they'll say, "Oh wow, this is incredible! Look at these animals here. This is you know beautiful." Not everybody's into reptiles, amphibians. They kind of get lumped together in the same same sure. same location in every zoo. Yeah, but um. When it's in someone's home, it's usually a very different response. Like, oh, you keep those things in your home? Like, well, yeah. yeah. I, I never really understood why that is. I mean, obviously, some of it's public perception because, you know, some people don't really have the best uh, the best public image, we'll, we'll say, when it comes to animals. But right. I, I feel like that's one of those things where, I mean, as a private hobbyist, I feel like it's it's... I mean, it's my responsibility to interact with people who come into my home, guests, family, whomever, and present it to them as the highest way possible because I want them to say, hey, look, you know, I, I'd yeah. rather you're you're on par with what I would expect to see at a zoo. And I, I feel like Agreed. that should be, I mean, I, it, for me, it's always been a goal. And even when it was, you know, when I was younger, it was unattainable. And I mean, you know, people today, especially younger people have just so, you have so many more resources than we had in the you know in the late 80s and early 90s and it's it's great to see that but um what do you think the criteria should be for someone who wants to get involved in something like this like what do you think the foundations of being a good potential keeper should include like if if you if you wanted to say mentor someone someone said hey look i want to get involved with these animals what qualities would you look for in that person that you know would translate into someone who would be a successful and responsible keeper yeah i mean i think dedication to the animals um like if it's someone locally i would have them come see my like this is very uh fun to think about and it would be really fun if it actually happened um you know come see my animals come if they wanted dart frogs particularly i would have them breed fruit flies um so we skipped over some of this but i when i was in college i was a ta and um i was a genetics TA for a while. And so I would breed all the fruit flies for the genetics lab. Um, and then I'd have to, uh, um, like stun them and sort them out under the microscope to, so that I could do selective breeding with them. Um, so it was a, 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 too much fruit flies for me at that point, but, um, I would have people breeding fruit flies, um, as, uh, you know, not a hazing, but like, a realistically this is the kind of like can you do the most mundane aspect of this uh because if if that's going to tire you out then no matter how dazzling the frogs are you're not going to want to keep doing it and so i would encourage people to think about what the hours of cleaning glass and um cleaning uh fruit flies and changing dirty water um, is going to look like and um, see if they're still interested in doing that. I'd, I'd have people, I'd have required reading um, in my little uh, mentoring program that I'm making up right now, top of my head. 
Um, and yeah, but I, I, I don't think the barrier should be that high for people getting into this hobby. Um, I think that it's not, it's specific, but it's not that hard. Like there are a lot of things you can get wrong, but if you have the right guidance, it's not that hard to do it. Uh, especially again with what you're saying, the technology that we have today. Um, I would also have people make their own enclosure or at least design their own enclosure. Like, you know, if they want to get an Exoterra or, you know, something like that, fine. But then I would have them modify it and know exactly how they're modifying it. And I think even better is building your own enclosure and being able to um, modify every aspect of it. Yeah, I think that the dedication aspect that you said is the most most important thing too. I like I I found that like in in jobs that I have had in the past is that like you know if if you really want something if you really want this particular job or this particular whatever you have to be willing to put up with the worst of it. Yeah. Just because if you if you want the best of it, you have to put up with a lot of the worst of it to get there. Yeah. You know, I think that's a really useful way of thinking about when you're getting into something, um, especially like this is a living animal that's going to live ideally a couple decades. Like these frogs will hopefully live 20 years. So what's, what's the worst aspect of these, of these animals that I want to keep for two decades? And will I tolerate that? Um, and for me, the answer is definitely yes. Now, I want to just pick your brain real quick because you, you, you threw me a curveball there with the fruit flies. Now I'm interested. Uh, when you worked in the lab with the fruit flies, mm-hmm. which species were you working with? Was it Melanogaster or Hydei? They were Melanogaster. Okay, okay. Just for my own curiosity, like, what, were you doing anything different in the lab than we're doing in the hobby? Like, did you guys have any kind of, like, you know secret formula or anything like that that separated it from what we kind of do at home no i mean it it was fruit fly it was some mix that they got from a like biologic institute um that you just mix with water and then we grew we had them in much smaller test tubes because we didn't need as big of numbers um because you're just doing you know it's just like essentially simple mendelian genetics you know like this eye color trait is um, dominant, but this wing trait is recessive. And so like, then you mix them. And so we didn't need thousand, you know, we weren't trying to um, maximize production. We were trying to demonstrate how these things work um, for simple Mendelian genetic traits. Um, And so it was, sponges that we had them on instead of like excelsior or um uh coffee filters or what i'm usually using um it was very easy then to get them off but like if you only had a couple hundred that was fine and we they were in um essentially like really big test tubes that also had like sponge on the top so you just pop the sponge off um and we kept them in it was essentially like a humidity chamber that um, it might have even been regulated. I don't know. It was like a chemistry hood type thing that we just had boxes of fruit flies in. You just pull out a box. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's ethanol that we used to stun them. 
um, if I remember incorrectly. And so you would just like put, I would not feed these to the frogs then, but you just put some on a cloth, take the, like shake the tube down, put the ethanol cloth over the top of the test tube and wait until they stop moving. And you pour them out on the table and you have like two minutes to sort as many as you can and then put them into their next test tubes or put the ones back in. And you had to be pretty careful not to make a mistake because if you put, especially like with the dominant trait, if you put the wrong thing into the next generation, then you ruin the experiment. And then the um, professor gets a little bit salty. Now, were there any takeaways that, I mean, obviously we weren't breeding for quality. I mean, excuse me, you weren't breeding for quantity. You were breeding for genetic, you know, genetic purposes. Were there any takeaways, like, I mean, any particular strain or fruit flies that you thought would do well in the hobby based on any particular characteristics? Or was it something that you really wouldn't necessarily relate to um, anything productive that we would do in the hobby? Yeah, not pretty much. It was mostly like when I read that you can breed your own flies. I Well, one, I had experience with crickets with my bearded dragon and my um, geckos, and I don't like crickets. And so realizing that I've had experience with flies before and they're fine, um, that was empowering. And then the one thing I would say is that um, all of the flies that we had were flightless, but they were winged. And so sometimes they would get that simple trait reversed and fly and so i now have truly wingless or apteric flies and i would encourage everyone to do that because opening one test tube of flies and have them fly is so disappointing and i can't imagine opening a whole uh deli cup and having them fly that would i would i'd be i'd be very sad it's a it's a nightmare that sadly yeah. I have woken up to on one or two times it's happened to me. And it's, yeah, yeah, no. If you get ones that are actually wingless or apteric, um, it's more than one more than one gene that's been disabled, and so they can't just reverse that. It happened to me with Heidi Eye. Interesting. I think, I think it might have been that I've heard different theories about Heidi Eye, and I haven't I haven't had Heidi Eye in probably over a year. But I think that what happened was the temperature got too high. And I don't, I, I think that, again, I could be wrong. If anybody's listening can correct me, please do. But uh, after a certain temperature, I can't remember what it, what it was. They bec- somehow they, they become, they, they're able to fly again. I think that the muscles atrophy or something like that below a certain temperature. And I remember I left these over, they, I left these over a, 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 a light. I had them on top of a tank kind of sitting right next to the light and the cultures did get very, very warm. I don't do that anymore. But when I opened up that one culture and I mean, they all just took off and I was like, oh, that's it. That was, I think that was honestly why I quit high DI altogether was that reason. Sure. Yeah. I believe that. I'd be miserable. Oh yeah. It was terrible. And then getting blamed, you know, when there's fruit flies elsewhere in the house, yep. which aren't mine. Um, yes. That was, oh no, yeah. that's a point of discussion for sure. Yeah, that's that's like, never. Do that's they have wings? Fun. If they have wings, e- they're not my fruit flies. Yeah. So <laughs> you've you've effectively solved that problem. Yeah. Although with mine, it's amb- it's amb- ambig- ambiguous because I can just say, oh, they're flying, and mine don't fly, and right. No one in my house is going to get out a magnifying glass. They're just going to probably swat it and kill the fly anyway. <laughs> not yeah. ask any questions, but for sure. Yeah. Uh, the the the. the the wonders of keeping flightless fruit flies. Yes. So what have you learned along the way about 
like yourself as a keeper, meaning we talk a lot about animals that are suited for our lifestyle and our well-being and whatnot. Like, has there been any limitations or anything? I mean, it doesn't have to be dart frogs. I know you keep snakes and you keep ball pythons as well. I mean, like, what have you learned about yourself as, as a keeper by using this type of method of, of keeping, we'll call it? Yeah, I mean, I've learned that keeping things much more naturalistically or bioactive, if you want to use that term, is much more interesting to me. Uh, I love being able to sit and watch my animals and the maintenance is their environment instead of having to clean cages constantly. So I'm, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's probably a similar amount of work. It's just doing different amount of work, whether you're going to keep things, um, in a more, um, like, uh, sterile or cleanly way versus um in a more naturalistic way but for me keeping things more naturalistic and dart frogs i think are like the perfect way to get into that because it's probably the best way to keep them um it just makes sense they're they're small and they they poop small frequent amounts and they like to be in a moist environment so it's it lends itself quite well to that so um I, I love maintaining their environment and being able to watch it change over time. Um, I also, uh, I mean, my bearded dragon is very diurnal, but I love having animals that are active throughout the day versus um, my snake that I don't see as often and all those geckos, which I, I love dearly and want more back in my life at some point. But if I want to see them during the day, I have to, you know, flip over their hides and or feed them. But my dart frogs are just out and about and they're on my desk. And so when I'm at work or, or you know, working from home and I'm on like a Zoom call or something, I can just look over and see these little yellow and black jewels hopping around uh, looking for fruit flies and uh, springtails and that's awesome and and makes me realize that I want uh, I want more of that as my collection expands I'll probably get some more nocturnal animals so that I uh, you know something's always happening somewhere in the enclosure in the room um, but diurnal display animals are much more interesting to me than something that you can hold or something that is really cool but is hiding all day yeah, I have some nocturnal species, and it's it's amazing how much they transform at night when yeah. there's no light on whatsoever. And I mean, I'm I, you know I, I'm I'm in bed relatively early, so I don't really see this. And my reptile room is downstairs, but when I go down in the middle of the night and you go down there with that flashlight, it's amazing how much you miss during the day just because of the you know the circadian rhythm of the animal that you're working with. Yeah. I think it's a big source of bias in how we think about some of our nocturnal animals that we keep frequently, like ball pythons, for example, that people um, tend to keep in pretty minimalistic enclosures. Um, one, give them a big space and ability to climb and ability to bask. And yeah, they're, I mean, they're not um, like some diurnal colubrid that's going to race around the enclosure they, they're not like that they're much more sedentary um, and they do spend lots of time hiding but you will see them do those things and then 
um, watch them at night or, and I don't have this, but uh, a camera, you know, um, is something I've been thinking about because I think it would change the way we would think about them. Um, just like if you have the opportunity to see them in the wild, um, but really seeing any of these animals in the wild, you don't need to, I don't need to see, you know, these specific dart frogs go to any forest and see frogs, um, changes the way you think about what you're doing inside a box. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the ball Python thing, this is the thing that always weirded me out about ball pythons. When I had my first ball Python, it was 1995, I think, or 1996. Sure. And they were by and large all wild caught, imported from from Africa, and they just they generally did not do well. They they were actually really inexpensive snakes, but it's that first generation thing again. Yeah, they were they were cheap imports, and they they did not do very well. It was they were notoriously difficult to get to eat and difficult to get the humidity right. It was really really a hard species, and a lot of people just didn't want to be bothered with them because of those peculiarities and now i mean they're so much more forgiving now than they were 30 years ago i mean to the point where it's like they've become so ubiquitous it's like they're like i don't want to say like a, like a garbage species but they've almost become this like disposable species and like i'm like man like this was a beautiful animal this was this incredibly colored you know gorgeous snake and now it's yeah. like it's so far removed from the way that it originally started out. So my my question like to, to ball Python keepers is are things still being based on the way that they were 30 years ago? And this is kind of like what I said about the, the Lamani earlier is that when you have animals that are really, really fragile and wild caught and haven't established Keeping them very, very simply was kind of the only thing that you could do at the time because there were risks right. of infection. You you didn't want any kind. You wanted to just keep it like like a baby in a crib, <laughs> Liter- sure. literally. You know. Yeah. And I, I often wonder. I mean, obviously, I don't want to get a whole ethical discussion on on ball pythons, but you know, my question is. How does that like? How has ball python husbandry advanced in comparison to, say, dart frog husbandry? Because dart frogs were kind of very difficult to keep in the beginning, and they're right. they're not they're not forgiving. I mean, they're they're easy to keep if you do everything right. Whereas a ball python, you can probably, you know, don't do this, yeah. but you could probably neglect it for a very very long time, and it it, it, yeah. it won't die. Since you keep both species, and I'm assuming you have input from both worlds. What's your opinion on that? I mean, is there is there that kind of like a husbandry dichotomy that exists there as well, or is it just oh, kind I think of a, so? Okay. Um, so I mean, yeah. So it, and this is actually probably a, a fairly good illustration of uh, why I think the importance of education. So I feel like I did my homework before I got my my ball python. I also think that ball python is a silly term. Like royal python is such a better name for how beautiful they actually like the wild type actually is. Um, but I feel snobbish if or like like I'm trying to make myself an elite person if I'm always calling them royal pythons. But I think it is a better name. Um, but ball pythons, um, like wh- when I got them, I was early in my medical training. Uh, my one snake, uh, I was early in my medical training, and I knew I was going to be super busy. And I knew there would be times where I couldn't see the snake every day um, because I'd be at the hospital. And 
um it was fine like the snake was doing fine but i the the things that i read about the care of the snake were um you know popularly available care stuff i didn't go deep into the natural history of it and i kept it in a tub essentially like i had one snake i didn't have a rack but i had one snake and i kept it in a, like the biggest sweater box essentially that i could find gave it two hides had a hot spot and a, like a hot side and a, a cool side and then um what appealed to me about dart frogs was um again not to sound elitist but have they have a little bit of an air of sophistication um a different aesthetic about them the people that tend to be interested in them are different uh they're not looking to uh, they might be looking to collect a whole bunch of different locales, but they're not looking at, um, you know, chasing the newest uh, morph and calling them paint jobs. You know, like it's different, the, that that feeling and the idea of uh, uh, curating your plant selection and all this was very appealing to me. And I felt like I fit in better there than with ball python uh, crowd, um, especially only having one ball python and not breeding it felt made me feel like I don't belong in the in the world of ball pythons. But then as I'm learning more about these dart frogs in um like summer of 2020 and I'm listening to your podcast, I'm listening to Dylan on Animals at Home, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I not doing this with my ball python? And who is what people you know, when I started and plenty of people still would say is, you know, like a higher level of care than a lot of the animals are getting in Iraq. Um, I started to feel pretty uncomfortable with it pretty quickly. And then so after we moved to our, um, you know, now home where we live, um, that became a priority for me is building a larger enclosure. So I, I built a PVC. Um, four by two by two for the snake um, and have seen a radical change in her behavior where she's much more interactive, eats uh, way more. Like seems like she's constantly hungry, like always looking for food. Um, She's basking, climbing. um, And again, not like some snake, not like a, diurnal arboreal snake would be um but much different behavior than what i was seeing when i had her in um a relatively big tub uh and already i am like thinking about how i could make a bigger better enclosure for her in a in a way that i didn't think i you know that wouldn't be what i would imagine it would be like three years ago thinking about this i'd be like oh i really like her. I've had her for eight years. I'm going to keep her for the rest of her life because I really like her, but she's kind of in the corner and here's the rest of my beautiful collection. Now she's very much part of my beautiful collection in a naturalistic enclosure that often throughout the day I can see her in. Yeah. It's more fun when it's enjoyable. And I mean, people do things for different reasons. And I mean, again, you know, to, to, to supply a need, obviously you have to streamline an operation. I mean, whether it's frogs or whether it's snakes, whatever, you know, I get that that's, that's part of it. But 
I mean, I feel like part of the hobby with anything is to really, like, rather than looking for more animals, I mean, this is kind of something that I, I we kind of started off the episode. I mentioned how I kind of started off with a lot of animals and, you know, my knowledge base kind of increased as I went along. But now it's, for me at least, it's not like, I don't want any more animals. I don't, I don't want any more. And it's, there's a number of reasons for that, but I, I kind of want to invest more into what I already have. Because for me at this point in my life, that's at least, that's how I can grow. And I feel like there was a point in the past where it really wasn't about growing what you have. It was really just more about getting more and more and more and more. And that was kind of a common thing was like every, you know, every time an expo comes around, you go and you pick up something new. And I just, I've gotten tired of that as time's gone by. And I want to invest that rather than going and sinking, you know, a few hundred dollars into another snake. I'd rather sink that money into something more elaborate for the snakes that I do have, you know? And I mean, I don't have, I've got a couple of colubrids. I mean, I have one little, um, I, I actually, I kind of contradicted myself. I did pick up a, uh, <laughs> a little, I picked up a little, I picked up a little milk snake about, um, uh, two, about, about a year and a half ago. And, sure. um, he's, he's still kind of in a little grow out inside of a larger vision cage. Sure. I've actually found that like, um, I'll use bigger cages that have more stable heating and put a smaller cage inside that one. Yeah. And it's just, idea. it's just much easier to, to just control the parameters because you've almost got like a little pseudo incubator going on so he's in a little tub inside of his bigger enclosure sure. until he's ready to grow out but um where was i going with this oh um <laughs> i'm more interested in kind of upgrading what i already have because i don't i don't want to take in i don't want any more lives to take on i've already got animals that are in their 20s i've got some animals that are young enough awesome. now that they could you know i'm not they're going to outlive me so yeah. I don't want to invest more money into animals that I don't need. I'd rather invest more money into the animals that I already have. And I yeah. feel like that's an aspect of the hobby that is starting to be more encouraging to people. And I feel yeah. like it's, it's not about having you know, like a while back, like YouTubers doing like, you know, it's not really so common anymore, but like, you know, check out my hundred pets. And right. I felt like that kind of fell out of favor because it's just, I mean, for people doing that, it's really, it's a tremendous amount of work to maintain yeah. that many animals properly. And, um, I just feel like it's one of those things nowadays where people are kind of holding themselves to higher standards to try and pr improve on what they've already got rather right. than add to it. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's so many aspects to any part of her pediculture that can lend themselves to that. And I, but I do think particularly in the poison dart frog hobby, um with plants and advancing like technology with lighting and um misting and fogging and ventilation there are so many ways of doing that that uh it's really endless like you could have yeah i mean i could make uh you know massive like your your whole series on the the large format vivs um i could make that for the frogs i have and spend the next two years working on that and it'd be it'd be awesome that's probably not the route i'm gonna take because i do i uh do have plans to continue to slowly expand um but at some point i want to do something like that and um yeah just continue to improve the lives of what you have i think there's 
um, lots of ways people can do stuff and meet their own goals. This is a, a human centered hobby. Like we're not doing this for the animals. We're doing this because we like it, but we need to make sure we're maintaining a certain minimum welfare standard for the animals. Otherwise we're exploiting them for our enjoyment. And so as long as you are avoiding that, and I think there's lots of different ways that you can get to that end. I have no problem with it. For me, I want to continue to advance and make it more interesting. So would you say that your goal is to just kind of stick with the lamel with the uh, Lucamelis for the time being, or is there any other species at some point? I mean, not, you know, not today, tomorrow, yeah. a year from now, but right. is there like a target species that you're looking to, because like everybody starts off, I mean, like, like, like as, as an artist, I mean, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your art too, because you've got sure. some pretty amazing artwork, but you know, when you're an artist and you start off with a thumbnail sketch or you might do a painting or a drawing and then you're not really happy with it and you do another version and another version until you finally think to yourself, all right, this is the goal. This is kind of where I want sure. to be artistically, whether it's, you know, pen and ink, whether it's the art of creating a vivarium or whatever. Um, there's always some kind of goal, some kind of higher bar that you want to set for yourself. Is there a certain species that's your kind of grail species that you kind of want to gear up to with your, the, you know, from the experience that you've developed um, now sure. up until, you know, where you want to be, say, you know, year, five years, 10 years, wherever? I don't know. I, I, um, I definitely do plan to get more. So I have plans to get Phyllobates terribilis in the fall. Um, as long as I get my act together and build the vivarium this summer. Um, and then I have a dream of having like a representative species of the major, uh, every like major genus that we have in the hobby. So I would, you know, Luca Melis would be my dendrobates, Terabilis would be my phyllobates. Um, I would, um, like to have you know whether it would be Rantamea, some imitator or vanzellini um are the ones that i would think of for that um and then ufaga whether it would be there's so many cool ones um but i mean i i love a lot of the sylvaticas um and um but histrionica are really cool too um i mean any of those large uh, Ofaka are, are so cool. So that would be awesome to like get one of each. I would also love um, uh, Amarega bilinguis. It's actually the only poison frog that I've seen in situ. Um, I, I studied in Ecuador for a month and got a chance to see those in the, in the wild. And they're such cool frogs um and so they have like a little special place um so that th those would be cool to have at some point too um but i plan to expand slowly so like maybe i'll get a rantamea and decide that that small size um makes me feel more comfortable with having them in the same size enclosure but then like i have a better standard for them because they're so little and then maybe i'll go hard into rantamea and uh you know, not continue down that road and never get a faga or, you know, who knows? Yeah. Bilinguist is, is beautiful. I was, they're so cool. Yeah. I was, when I was talking to Sean McIntyre in the last episode, he mentioned them and I pulled up a picture on, uh, on Google. I mean, th these things are, I mean, they've got every color in the rainbow and except, I mean, except purple, but 
they've got almost almost all the colors. I mean, this is a this is a stunning frog. Yeah, no, they're really remarkable. Um, and the uh, I found two when I was in Ecuador, and they're so red. And then those flashes of yellow are are stunning. But yeah, they I mean they have the three primary colors um, with their red backs, blue legs, and then those flashes of 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 yellow. Um, they're they're really cool looking. Yeah, you're right. I, I, they're not all the colors of the rainbow. I'm looking at this one on a green on a green leaf, and then that that's you. I mean, you're right. It's just primary. There's colors. greenish hue in there, <laughs> and 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 there's there's black in there too and stuff. But yeah, I mean, but they're they're really pretty. Yeah, it's it's a gorgeous. I mean, I'd never heard of them before until um, Sean mentioned them to me. But yeah, that's 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 definitely a winner in my book. Yeah, I got a framed little photo of one that I took with my camera when I was in uh, in Ecuador. That's on my wall that I can look at in my office, and I, I love it. That's yeah, pretty cool. So, I mean, to, just to kind of talk about your art a little bit. I mean, sure. you, you've got a pretty cool logo, Creepers Herpeticulture. Yeah, and obviously this is this is your logo, and you do some additional artwork as well. But um, how'd you come up with the idea for the logo? Like, what what artistically went into creating this design yeah so i mean it's actually kind of funny um when i decided i was going to expand um my collection and i was like well i want to brand it um because that seemed really interesting to me and so i wanted to brand it to look like um kind of like the early 90s uh cartoons and skateboarding and and um, like, I don't know if you, uh, creepy crawlies, uh, um, it was like a, like an easy bake oven thing to make little, uh, toys of, um, uh, like gooey bugs and snakes and stuff. And you could put like wheels in them and make them like, uh, go across the floor. Um, but yeah, like, so like the creepy crawlies logo, um creatures skateboards um thinking about some of those uh like comic books and um uh those type of lettering um is really what i was was going for and then so making everything kind of um fluorescent and bright in that way which is very different than a lot of the art that i make and so it was going to be a fun adventure and branding and my goal was starting the web page wasn't ever to be like big or anything and i don't think i am it's to just make connections with people and it's been very successful in that as far as meeting lots of really cool people um like you and a lot of the guests you've had and um and others so yeah i mean this it's it's been a fun little project yeah, and I'm looking at some of the. I mean, you'd sent me a couple of your zines here, and I've I've got them sure. in front of me, and I'm looking at the one. This one is is snakes, and it reminds me a lot of. And we we kind of discussed this. There's there was a lot of. Um, I think I mentioned this before. The the Dover publications, which were yeah. sort of like um, like like kind of like non copyrighted um like like reference drawings. They were generally black and white, and you've really like nailed that with this. I mean, you've got these illustrations in here, which um, they, they look like, I mean, some of them are like, uh, almost like flash art style, like kind of like tattoo art and you've got stuff that's done with stippling and, um, 
you've got like in uh, the one I'm looking here is uh, you've got um, it looks like two coral snakes or it's or it's or either that or it's a coral and a king snake, but they're kind of intertwined yeah. in this little like logo yeah. position. I mean, it's yeah. it's really really cool. I mean, what, what and you've got oh oh awesome! You've got the Orin from the Neverending Story here and the yeah or, yeah. So, or something some some something very similar. No, it um, is from Neverending Story. It is okay. Yeah. What what drew what like what gave you the inspiration to work in black and white? I mean, this is this is um this is pen and ink, right? That you're that you're working in with these zines. Yeah. So that one is essentially all Sharpie. Um, so I. Um, the way my brain works when I'm thinking about these things, I like to have constraints on it. So I think that there is um, a lot of creativity that you can unharness when you are actually creating some rules and some boundaries, and then you continue to explore variations on a theme within that. So, um, and the other thing is, um, part of me, I have a drive to create and make things. It's just what makes me feel good. And so I'm always, I want to draw and I want to draw and make stuff somewhat regularly, but especially like with medical training and then a young family, it's hard to get time to do that. And so I don't want to waste time thinking, Oh, what am I going to draw? And I also like to make something. And so if you're just going to draw something that's going to go into a, a drawer um, and then you're only going to see it like in a couple years when you pull it out. Instead, I make collections of things and make these little zines, which are, you know, like these little, for people who don't know, a little staple book, essentially. Um, but they're just photocopied and fairly cheaply made, but handmade. Um, and so instead, if I have 30 minutes, I know I'm just going to draw a snake. And I have all my reference material for snakes already picked out. And so I just look at the page and I draw the next one and my 30 minutes are up and I need to go to bed or I need to go to work or do whatever. Um, then the, you know, in a couple of days when I have 30 more minutes, I can draw another snake. And so I've done that with another, a number of things I've drawn. Uh, you have a, like a book of snakes. I have a book of all of the constellations. I have a book of, um, uh, art that um, is all inspired by icons that you would find on gravestones. Um, so different themes like that, that I, I, I pick a theme. They're all like the same format. They're all that, that kind of tattoo flash style. Um, sometimes I'm pulling imagery almost verbatim from something like the Ouroboros from the never ending story um, where I'm looking at that and just drawing in my own style or like that um, king snake, coral snake design that uh, I, I put my own patterns on the snakes, but that layout of those two snakes and how they're intertwined is um, a scientific illustration. I'm going to, I don't know exactly what century, but probably like the 1800s, um, Alberta Siba, who is a famous um, like scientific illustrator. Um, so I, I, you know, I got the forms of those snakes from his work um, and then drew the patterns of um, the two snakes on it. Yeah. I was, I was actually very surprised and not, not, not by you, but in general, a lot of people who are into the science, you know, into the scientific community as a profession also do illustration and do illustration extremely well. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I don't, I don't mean that yours is really good. I didn't, I didn't mean it like that, 
Um, yeah. But um, I meant like, um, oh God, I'm, what am I saying? I was surprised that anyone who was vested in the science world as opposed to the art world could kind of go back and forth between the two and yeah. do both so well. I, I'm sorry, I, I kind of framed that. No, no, I know what you're saying. Like there's, yeah. uh, um, and, and I think it's, there are some people that do a lot of really creative stuff stuff for sure and i i think the work i do is creative i'm reimagining things but it's also fairly rigid and formulaic in other ways that very well mesh with my otherwise like scientific brain but it is a release to be able to think about something a little bit differently and creatively but yeah that attention to detail that exactness that feeling of every time i pick up my fine point sharpie i know exactly how it's going to draw um on the drawing paper that i regularly use um that is uh almost scientific to me in in that process of it um and so um i think they harmonize well with each other and you mentioned sharpie do you have a preference just regular old Sharpies or do you have any preference for like any other types of, of markers as well? Yeah. I mean, this again is uh like cheap medical student wanting to draw all the time. Um, it's just the, the ultra fine point Sharpies and um, then the, the fine point to make the bolder lines um, are really what I use. I have used um, fancier art markers in the past. I mean, the concern is that Sharpie is not archival, and so it's going to degrade over time. But my originals mostly go into a drawer, and then what I consider the product to be these books, and I'm printing them cheaply. And if they get ruined, I just print another one. Um, and so maybe I'll re revise it over time and use um, art markers. I mean, I like art markers when I've had them, but they're they're 10 times more expensive and you can buy Sharpies at gas stations. And so, or like, uh, you know, any, uh, you know, big box store, you can just walk in and grab some and then you can draw wherever you are. And I love that approachable DIY aspect of Sharpies. And one of my favorite artists um, who I actually um, have taken lots of cues from uh, Mike giant, who's a, phenomenal illustrator, graffiti artist, and tattooer, um, but primarily illustrator. Um, he draws almost exclusively of Sharpies. And uh, so it's a little bit of Mike Giant worship too. Yeah, we have, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the um, the markers. I'm not allowed to use them though, because I'm not. Microns? <laughs> uh, I think so. Yeah, that's Microns it. are like that's very it. like specific points yeah. that they... Uh, they they uh, break. They pop in. Yeah, th yeah. That's it. The micron pens, and um, because yeah. my 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 wife is um, my wife teaches art and yeah and and graphic design and whatnot, and um, you know we've got you know a little art studio in our house, and I'm I'm nice. not, I'm, not yeah. allowed, I'm not allowed to touch the uh, the fancy markers. I'm allowed to use the sharpies because I'm I'm kind of heavy handed with them, but <laughs> yeah, um, the microns because they have like a like a metal stem and then just a felt end to them and so it's very easy to break that felt stem that felt tip into the into the stem and then they don't work um uh yeah I, there's other ones that I, I think are a little more friendly 
but none of them work as long or as reliably as Sharpies. Sharpies bleed. They're a little bit thicker. So you can't draw as detailed as you can for sure with like a micron and definitely not with like a, like a radiograph pen, but um, you just know the limitations of your medium and plan that way. Yeah. I, I liked working with marker myself. I was always into black and white. I never really liked color, which is kind of ironic because I like these colorful frogs, but um, right. yeah, I always enjoyed that too. It was just, um, you know, the, the pen and ink, you know, just cross hatching, stippling, stuff like that. For yeah. me, that was, that was always enjoyable for me. That was something that I always felt like I did pretty well in, but. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's something about the boldness of it that gets such high contrast and then it forces you to think about things in different ways, like whether I'm going to draw something with stippling or with, am I going to go really high contrast and just black out sections and have other sections be stark white in comparison? Um, how am I going to plan out the illusion of something being in color? Or am I going to forsake that altogether and make it almost like a graphic? Um, I really like that process and making those decisions. Um, I, I mess around actually on my creepers page a little bit, um, sometimes in um, uh, making stuff with my, my older daughter who is uh, turning seven now and she likes to draw with me and she'll invariably not want to draw everything black and white. And so we'll draw things in color together. Um, and I'll post some of that on my creepers because I often will be drawing frogs and lizards um and so messing around with that is, is fun and i do much looser uh drawings in that way with her um and so maybe that more of that will happen in the future um and it's fun to play with color but there's something about restricting to black and white and that very bold very stark um look and, and making everything look so uniform like you pull up any one of my zines and they're completely different subject matter but something about them feels familiar because of they're all the same size. They're all the same number of pages. They're all black and white. Yeah. They, I mean, they could all fit in the same volume. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I mean, I'm holding a stack of them here and you know, they could easily be, be one book together. Cause the, and that would be a plan in the future. If you know, like I make 10 of them or something, maybe I will like make a little book of them or something. Yeah. They're pretty cool. I like the way they're, I mean, it's, hang on. I, I mean, I got one in front of I me. Mean, you guys could probably hear me turning the pages, but it's like, I mean, it fits like right in your hand. It's like a, you know, yeah. I mean, not not quite like an eight and a half by 11, but like what, like an eight and a half by like eight by eight, maybe like folded in half. I mean, it's a nice size. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's an eight by 10. Eight by 10. Half. Okay. Yeah. So I print them on printer paper, fold them, staple them, uh, press them so they're flat. And then I cut down the edges so that that way I can get them to, um, you know, I can print right to the edge. I can get, make it full bleed, which I enjoy the look of that. I, I, I've developed a new appreciation for like graphic design as art. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. like just certain, I mean, I mean, especially with regards to graffiti, cause I mean, there's all different types of graffiti. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I mean, I knew a lot sure. of people that were into it when I was younger. You know, everyone yeah. had, everyone had their, their black book, but yeah, I, like there was this one image that always kind of stuck with me, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but it was like a stencil of, like, believe it or not, I think it was like Andre the Giant, and yeah, Old Bay he, Giant. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, Shepherd Fairy. I mean, but 
it, it was just so like just this weird image. Yeah. And you, you, you don't appreciate it when you first see it because like, oh, this is graffiti. And then you look at it like, wow, this is actually even like it's very, very simple. It's still incredibly impressive. And the image stays with you. So like with yeah. what you're telling me about your your approach here, it's a, you're right. That image is just so the, the contrast is just so strong that it stays with you. Yeah, no, I don't. Shepard Ferry, I would put in that same category as Mike Giant, as someone that I take a lot of cues from and wouldn't want to put myself in the same sentence with him. But like this, that same idea of variations on a theme, like he takes that Andre the Giant and has mutated so much over the decades, but it's still the same. Like he keeps on doing it over and over and over and over again. Um, and so you you see that image and it means something and in some small way i feel like you you pull up a, one of my zines and it says snakes on the cover and you look through it and you, by the end you're like yeah that's snakes those are snakes that's a lot of snakes um and so it's that same feel is what i'm kind of going for did you ever give any thought to doing a zine for like you know for dart frogs like as a um like a beginner's guide like an like illustrating a beginner's guide in your in your style yeah it could be fun i i there's a lot more work that goes into figuring out how you place font and type um and so i would like make a little artist statement at the front of mine but even that is like i know how many words it needs to be to fit onto those pages um so to do the type throughout one is a lot more work than, or so it's, it's an extra level, an extra step. Um, so I've resisted other than like the very simply like labeling things, adding um, a lot of text to my work, but it would be, it would be fun. Um, and then if I were to make something like that, I would probably just want to have it available online to distribute it. Cause part of like what I like about, making a zine is that it's a tangible thing that I can physically give to somebody or trade or sell them. If someone wants to buy them, um, I'm happy to do that too. Um, and, uh, so the thing that like, if I were to have a how to guide for, for dart frogs, um, you know, how big is my audience and how often am I going to be able to see someone that I can hand it to them or, uh, you know, mail it to them. Um, but it, it would be fun. The other thing is their color is such a striking aspect of it. I played around with the idea of, you know, you have, um, you know, a pattern on a, uh, the typical Luca Melis is so different than like the pattern on a typical Aratus, which is different than the pattern on a typical Tinctorius. And so if you reduce it down to just the black, how recognizable is that? Um, and I find it like fairly recognizable. I don't think, I don't, you know, could I do a whole zine of just the black dots of, of, of poison frogs? Uh, maybe that could be fun. It'd be an interesting take. I mean, honestly, it'd be yeah. a pretty, pretty cool challenge because the color is the first and foremost thing in everybody's eyes when you see these things, yeah. but you're right. There's yeah. a tremendous amount of black that's involved that not, I mean, even the scientific name, Lucamelis is white and black Yeah, because it's the, um, from what I, was t was led to, well not led to believe what I was told was yep. that when this when the first wet specimens were sent from South America to Europe yeah. for the taxonomists to look at they were preserved I think it was in alcohol and the alcohol you know removed bleached them out. yeah bleached all the colors so there was yeah. no way of knowing what color it was so they the taxonomists thought that it was black and white and hence the name Lucamelis 
Yeah. I love that sure. story. I thought, thought that was yeah. so cool. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're at the end here, but I wanted to know, like, you know, what, what, like, what are your final thoughts? I mean, what do you think that the hobby holds for people with this type of mindset in terms of people who want to can kind of continue with education and develop, um, develop their keeping methods based on, you know, scientific literature and input from others and whatnot. Like, what are, what are your thoughts on that line of thinking? And you think that that's the future of the hobby? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a bright future. And I think, um, probably the biggest thing is the internet, like as much of a downfall as social media is and the divisiveness that happens both within herpeticulture and society in general and social media. Um, I, you know, I'm very hesitant about that, but the being able to use social media to connect with like-minded people that are like literally across the globe is remarkable. And so I have gotten um, unique ideas from people online that I would have never, uh, like, I mean, having this conversation like wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, right? Um, and so I think that is the future of people that are like-minded and trying to advance the hobby, being able to share their ideas and more than just like a couple sentences on a forum here and there as good as those are like being able to have more long form conversations like this be able to have extensive tutorials on uh youtube being able to have um group chats that involve multiple people um that are all like-minded i think really does a, a a lot and then you can point each other toward that scientific literature um I would ideally love to see more funding of research and conservation from within the hobby um, and have the, you know, some of the work that we're doing in um, understanding the captive care of these animals. Um, you know, if you're, if you're selling animals, if you're selling products for animals, if you're baking enclosures or selling plants, some of that money going back into conserving the natural habitat for these animals or and studying them in the natural habitat in situ um, would benefit all of us. And so I would love to see more of that too, as, as time goes forward. I think there's all kinds of, you know, there's always the looming specter of, it, you know, will there be a ban on um, some aspects of reptile keeping and, and amphibian keeping. And I think that's a, a real concern. And um, so I don't want to be naive to that. And I don't want to say, oh, like the, you know, the poison dart frogs, or at least the ones I have, are going to be protected. So I don't care what's going to happen to the other animals. Um, I really do care about all of it. And I, but I think probably the best thing that I can do personally is to be a good advocate and a good advance, a, a ambassador. Um, and so if something comes up within my um, like jurisdiction where I have uh, a, a say in it, I can point to the work I've done and I have a track record of having responsible care. Um, and I think having a networking community of people that are doing that is probably the best way to safeguard this for the future, as well as just making it more enjoyable for us. All very good points. I mean, I agree with all that 100%. I, I feel like it's important that we 
you know, you have to, you have to come at this at a high level, you know, because if, if, I mean, if you're up at the top, then everybody's below you and you don't have to worry about defending what you do or anything like that. I mean, like what you mentioned with the legislation, um, you know, I mean, at least my, my perspective on it, I think is the same as yours is that I like to think that, I mean, at least in this hobby, the dark frog world, I like to think that by and large, the majority of us are really have those goals that you just mentioned. I mean, I can't really think of, I can't really think of anybody in the dart frog hobby or anybody who's a serious hobbyist vendor or, or otherwise who really doesn't have the same types of interests. I mean, it, I feel like maybe, I mean, it, it could very well be that kind of other little subcultures in the reptile and amphibian hobby might not necessarily be as proactive as a dart frog hobby. But I mean, again, that's just, that's just kind of a, you know, a matter of opinion, but yeah, it, it, it seems like, it seems like we're on the right track, you know? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Although I do concern, get concerned about um, if someone wanted to, and like an animal rights group would, um, it'd be pretty easy to demonize things that have happened to um, wild populations of dart frogs and the smuggling that's happened historically. And I don't think that's most dart frog keepers. I think you're absolutely right that the vast majority of people are very much against that and have a very, and the people, a lot of people have a very well-informed, nuanced view of the historical issues of smuggling in the hobby and are opposed to the current issues of smuggling in the hobby. Um, but it would be pretty easy to, uh, if, if we aren't able to speak up for ourselves, it'd be pretty easy for someone to come in and point to some bad things that a few people have done in the past um, and make us think about it. So I think um, even in the poison dart frog hobby, we have to, we have to be able to be accountable for the things that we do and be prepared. Yeah, no, very, very true. Very, very true. I feel like there's a, there's a lot of ammunition in the quiver though for us. I mean, I think that, Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that, uh, I mean, there's so much conservation work being done. I do think that, uh, the biocommerce stuff that Wakiri and Tesaros are doing in particular, um, um, is remarkable and is, I think, um, a model that the rest of her pediculture should follow. We should have places in, um, Asia and, uh, throughout parts of Africa that are breeding animals locally and then sending over F2, uh, captive bred animals and people willing to pay a higher price for that instead of, um, bringing in 10 times as many wild caught animals and hoping that 10% of them survive. Yeah, that's rough. That's a hard thing to justify. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just like being able to, I mean, you, like when you've talked to Ivan, the hurdles that he's gone through to be able to make that even a shot at a viable business, um, we need to support that type of venture so that that can be expanded beyond poison dart frogs, in my opinion. And, uh, I think that that's where if I could fast forward 20 years, I would like to see that happening in many more countries with a lot more animals um, in her pediculture. Yeah. I think that'd be great. Especially, especially Southeast Asia. That's, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges that go on with, For sure. yeah. I mean, e even like with like frog farming is a really big commodity or whatever business, whatever in Southeast Asia. And it'd be interesting to see, 
I mean, I've always wanted to get somebody on who does frog farming. I, I had for a, food, you mean? Yeah, yeah, for food. Yeah. I had a lead yeah. once, but I, this person um, just kind of directed me to his web page, which didn't really pan out. But oh, that um, would be really interesting. I think the bulk of it actually does happen in Southeast Asia, and it'd be interesting because you know how does that how does that affect native populations you know how do, how do you do how do you mitigate disease um how do you mi- mitigate invasive species i mean it's, oh, I was talking to somebody about it it was a long time ago though um I'm trying to remember who it was it might have been david blackburn we were talking about something like that in southeast asia but it, but you're right i mean there there's so many other parts of the world where that model could be utilized in a way that is you know yeah. pr- productive and not detrimental and we, I mean, this seems like a pipe dream, but imagine if we could convince Brazil to do that. Um, I mean, that, that's a big, it's a big pipe dream. You need a lot of government uh, changes, but the, 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 the doors that that would open up, if we could say, oh, let us breed to the second generation in your own country, let us make sure X percentage of the profits go back to your own country and to the captive welfare uh, or just the um, wild welfare and habitat. Um, and then let's stop the smuggling by, um, responsible biocommerce. And, um, I mean the same thing with Australia, like how great would that be? Um, yeah. which is ironic because we have bearded dragons. Right. Yeah. Think, think about, from, think about that for the country that never supposedly exported anything. We have built, we have bearded dragons, we have frilled lizards. So well, it's, yeah. I was thought it was kind of ironic that the company. We have like, Brazilian dart frogs too, though. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. But I mean, not every, I mean, bearded dragons are, who knows how common those are, but I, it's just. Oh yeah, for sure. It's just so but funny. the idea that we can't exchange captive bred bearded dragons from Australia with captive bearded, bred bearded dragons from the United States doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's, I, it's. The model Silly is outdated. Stuff. It's yeah. this is this is the the hobbyist mentality is twenty twenty three. The conservation mentality, and not for everybody, but the the polit we'll, we'll just call it the political conservation landscape is in the dark ages because they don't understand. I mean, I I, I don't want to get into a whole you know referendum on that either, but. Um, you know, politicians don't seem to understand what is going on in a way that is productive. I mean, how many species are available as captive bred animals now that there's absolutely no reason whatsoever outside of importing fresh bloodlines for breeding programs, which would be on a right. small, you know, a small scale. Yeah. You know, why this has to be so complicated. You know what I mean? It just seems exactly. I mean, we're going to be the ones paying for it. You know what I mean? Right. We're, it's it's going to be hobby. It's going to be the one that's going to be footing the bill. Yeah. So why not? I don't know. It's yeah, agreed. That's a whole other. There's a whole other discussion. But yeah, I, but I, yeah, I agree I, with you. If we can make more Wakiris and Tesauroses, I hopefully in my maybe naive but optimistic view, you can convince more governments to say, uh, "Oh, I want, uh, I want a piece of that." And let's have some of that in our country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who knows? You know what? It's, you know, things may change in the next few years. Who knows? They could go yeah. one way. They could go the other. They, yes, exactly. But it would be nice but if they went that way. <laughs> it'd be awesome. Yeah. 
Well, Billy, I hate to say this, but we're at the end. Um, yeah, for sure. It's, it's been great talking to you, though. It's, you know, a lot of interesting topics for discussion. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing everyone, you know, sharing your opinions with everyone on all these different topics. And for anybody who's interested in finding out more about you or your artwork or, yeah. um, you know, I know you're on Instagram, but I mean, any of the platforms that people could find out more if you want to share them with the audience? Yeah. So on Instagram, it's uh, Creepers Herpeticulture. Um, and that th that name is uh, Herpetos is um, Creeping Animal is what that is. So um branding myself after the the literal translation of that and then um on um my art page is uh, improbable design um and so you could find me at either of those places very cool all right everyone again i want to thank billy for coming on and, and uh, talking to us you know th these are all important topics you know and it's it's interesting to see how we progress as a hobby and as individuals and how we work towards advancing our keeping methods. And um, I think Billy's really got a great philosophy here when it comes to, you know, doing research, figuring out what the animals need, staying current and looking towards the future. And I think that that's an aspect of the hobby that, um, you know, we all should consider and always find very important, you know, is what, you know, where we are, where we came from and where we're going. So other than that, again, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, I've got some pretty cool stuff coming up in the near future, so make, make sure you stay tuned. Um, there may be some breaks in between the episodes, but um, I've got some great stuff in the works, and I want you guys to stay tuned, be ready. You know, it's coming out soon, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it, and I'll catch up with you again next time.